Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you are to us. Thank you, Lord, for, once again, your blessings. Thank you once again, Lord. We already thanked you before for your faithfulness, but we can't thank you enough. We thank you, Lord, for your word, the word that you inspired. You breathe out this word and you set aside a certain man that you wanted to record it, but they recorded your words and you use them to preserve it. And so we thank you that we have your preserved word here uh, before us. And we know, Lord, and, and with the original said, Lord, we have so many manuscripts and so forth in Greek and Hebrew and so forth. And um, Lord, you allow those documents to survive. You can even check them out on the website in, in those languages. So if we can read those languages, but we have them. And, and it's because of your hand, Lord, preserving the word that you inspired in spite of the fact that many people have tried to burn it and destroy it. Your word just won't go away because you are faithful, Lord. And your word endures forever. You know, even Jesus said, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thank you for your eternal word. And Lord, I'm blessed to have this opportunity to break the bread of your word with with your people, Lord. And anybody who's listening, Lord, I, I just thank you for this opportunity. I do pray for a fresh filling of your spirit and that you'll give us all fresh insight and understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So we are in 2 Samuel on Wednesday nights, and tonight we are in chapter 21, and we're going through verses 1 through 14. So yes, we are almost at the end um, of this book, and we're learning how to reach our full potential in Christ. So every lesson builds upon that theme, reaching our full potential uh, in Christ. And that theme, by the way, started in 1 Samuel. So um, if you're wondering what we're going to get into next after we're done with 2 Samuel, since we're almost at the end of it, uh, I mentioned a few weeks back that, you know, it's just placed on my heart to do um, a study on what you would call Christology. It's a branch of theology about Christ, about, about his nature, about who he is. And so uh, I'm thinking it's going to... Um, be at least a, a, a three-part series. At the very least, is so much um, information, so much to learn about Jesus. And so that's where we're headed next. But once again, we are still in Second Samuel, and, and, it's, and, I, and I pray that it will be a blessing uh, to you tonight. And so Second Samuel 21, verses 1 through 14, the title is Overcoming Hindrances to Prayer. Overcoming Hindrances to Prayer. And so we all know It's been ingrained in us as believers that prayer is important. Prayer is important. That's been ingrained within us. In fact, Jesus taught that men or that people in general ought to pray and not lose heart. In other words, not give up. Jesus taught persistence in prayer in Luke chapter 18. But we also see a command in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5, verse 17, which says to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. 
And since prayer is so important, we shouldn't want anything to hinder prayer. But I do want to go back just a little bit and address what it means to pray without ceasing. Uh, that doesn't mean that every single second you're, you're praying to where you don't have time to eat or, or to have a conversation with even the folks in your household. But when you pray without ceasing, you're, you're, it's, almost like, uh, it's almost like one of those intermittent coughs. Like when you cough, you don't do one long cough. You do the cough and maybe a few seconds later, that's of course if something is in your throat, you cough again and that may go on throughout the day. But it's intermittent. It comes and goes. So, so when we pray, when we pray, we do it without ceasing. It's just throughout the day as, as situations come up, pray. When something good happens, pray and thank the Lord. Because when you pray, it's not all about asking for things. Prayer could be thanksgiving, giving thanks to God. It could just be uh, prayers of adoration, just telling the Lord how much you love him, how much you appreciate him, and all he has done for you and for your family. So, so we're to pray without ceasing, and we shouldn't want anything to hinder prayer. And so the question needs to be put out there to you. And the question is, how do we prevent our prayers from being hindered? In other words, how do we uh, stop our prayers from being held back or blocked, so to speak? And another question is, how can we overcome it if our prayers are currently hindered? Maybe there's somebody who, who feels that their prayers are hindered. They, they just don't seem to go past the ceiling. Just not seeing any results. How to overcome that if it's hindered. And so we're going to get to that by the end of the lesson, of course. But we do want to look at the scriptures in context and then pull from the scriptures what the Lord will have us to meditate on. And so in 2 Samuel 21, verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house or his family of murderers because he killed the Gibeonites. And so the king called the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant or the survivors of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. And so there was this shortage of food for three consecutive years. And, and, and that third year, that's when David decided to go before the Lord. And I like how God gives him the reason for this shortage of food for this famine that they've been experiencing for three years in the land. He gives them a reason and it involves, of course, a people called the Gibeonites. See, the Gibeonites, they were the inhabitants of a place called Gibeon. And they are here referred to as the remnant or the survivors of the Amorites. 
Now, just a little quick history. The Amorites, that word is used here as a common word for the original inhabitants of Canaan. Canaan, of course, is the promised land that Israel is in even today. But we call it the promised land because God promised it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, the Israelites. And so they're in this land today, Canaan, but the Amorites were the original inhabitants of that land. But specifically, the Gibeonites were called the Hivites. And that's according to Joshua chapter 9, verse 7. And they were living currently, according to this lesson, currently in the lesson, they were living in the territory that belonged to the tribe of Benjamin because Gibeon belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. You see, according to Joshua 9, as we talk, to, talk about these Gibeonites, you see, Joshua and the Israelites, because Joshua is the leader in Joshua 9, Moses had already passed away. He passed away from the scene. Joshua's the leader. So him and the Israelites, they were defeating the inhabitants of Canaan so that they would possess the promised land, which is, of course, Canaan. And so during that time in Joshua 9, that uh, Joshua and the Israelites were defeating um, those enemies that stood in their way, you had this group called the Gibeonites who we were talking about, and, and they pretended to be ambassadors from a far country, and they even dressed up to make it look like they had this long journey. The bread was moldy, the, the sandals, they made them look old, like they had come from a long journey, but, but they were really people who were from the land of Canaan who the Israelites were supposed to defeat. That's according to God. But these Gibeonites, you can call them Amorites, these Hivites, they, they tricked Joshua and the Israelites into making a covenant with them. The covenant, of course, is an agreement. And they tricked them into doing that so that their lives would be spared because they heard how Joshua and the Israelites had been defeating the people who stood in their way. And so it's there that I want to pick up in Joshua chapter 9. And I want to look at verse 15. I want to start there so you can learn more about this situation. So Joshua 9 verse 15, it says, so Joshua made peace with them. He made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and they came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kerjath-Jerim. And the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. You made an agreement with these people and they're our neighbors. We were supposed to have defeated them, but we can't now. Because we sworn to them. And so in verse 19, it says, Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. 
And the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Verse 23, now therefore you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered, these are the Gibeonites, they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day, Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. And so you get a little background on the Gibeonites relationship with the Israelites and how that promise was made to them um, not to harm them. And in Joshua chapter um, 9, verse 20, we see that the people understood that they needed to keep their word to the Gibeonites or they would face the wrath of God. And this just goes to show us that God expects his people, not just the Israelites, but, but believers, he expects us to keep our word to people. He expects us to keep our promises. He expects us to keep our vows. That, that is, if we make vows, he wants us to keep our word, the word that we have made to our children. We promised our children we're going to do certain things and we don't show up. We don't follow through. He expects us to keep our word, the word that we give to our employer. He expects us to keep our word, the word that, that we gave to our neighbor, things that we said we're going to do for them. He expects us to be honest and to keep whatever promises we have made to them. And how about this? Since we have many married people in here, he expects us to to keep our vows to our spouses. And what a good witness that is to our children. What a good witness that is to believers and, and unbelievers alike. Say it's a great example if we are, are to keep our vows in good times and bad times, that, you know, in sickness and in health and so forth. We keep our vows when we do that with our spouses, Keeping our promises, that, that is such a great witness and a great example. And it's something that God expects us to do. And moving on to verse 3, it says, Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement? So what shall I do to make up for the harm that Saul caused? In other words, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. And the inheritance of the Lord is speaking of the Lord's people, the nation of Israel. See, the nation of Israel is the nation God had chosen. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the word of God, according to Romans 3 and verse 2. They were also the nation that God chose to use to bring the Messiah into the world. And that is, of course, according to Jesus's humanity. 
So according to his humanity, he is a Jew. He is an Israelite from the tribe of Judah. And he chose this nation, the nation of Israel. And to be sure, God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And God will complete that plan. He will complete the purposes he has for the nation of Israel. He's faithful. We talked about that word faithful throughout the night, even in the song. He's a faithful God. You see, at this time, we are in what we would call the church age. The church age began in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit was poured upon the church on the day of Pentecost, that began what you would call the church age. And we are still in the church age. God is working in and through his church. He is still gathering the bride of Christ. So there's still some unbelievers who are going to be a part of the bride of Christ if they were to repent and receive Jesus. And so the bride of Christ is being built in the church age. And the church age will end, by the way, at the rapture. So from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 until the rapture, that's the church age. Rapture hasn't taken place yet. So guess what? We're still in the church age. And the church, by the way, in the New Testament is called God's inheritance. But wait a minute, uh, Pastor Darrell, you just read that. Uh, the nation of Israel was called God's inheritance. And now in the New Testament, the church is called God's inheritance. That's what it says in the scripture. And, and, and that's, this is not replacement theology. Because I mentioned that God still has a plan. He has, he's going to complete his program that he has with the nation of Israel. But right now, he's working through the church. And the church is made up, by the way, of believing Jews and believing non-Jews that we call Gentiles. So anybody who repents and put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, they make up the church or the bride of Christ. They are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And I have to say this, the, the, the baptist being baptized by the Holy Spirit, that, that's, that's different from the baptism Jesus gives using the Holy Spirit. So the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit places us in the body of Christ. That's a once and for all thing. But when we talk about Jesus baptizing us with the Holy Spirit, notice here, Jesus is the one doing the baptizing. So the Holy Spirit does the baptizing when we receive Christ, but then Jesus does the baptizing, not using water, but using the Holy Spirit in order to cause that overflow of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which empowers us to be effective witnesses for him. You see that in Acts uh, chapter one, Jesus mentions that. And so we are placed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, Jew, believing Jews, believing Gentiles. It's the church age right now. No, Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read in, in the New Living Translation. Ephesians 1, verse 18. It says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are rich who are his rich and glorious inheritance. His holy people, those he called the church, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. So yes, the church is God's inheritance. 
But, but yes, he's going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. He's going to complete that program that he has with them, those promises. There's still some promises he made to them in the Old Testament that he's going to fulfill. But he's going to get back to them. Remember, he's going to switch his focus back to them during the tribulation period. But I do want to emphasize this point that we as a church, we are his special people. We, we need to remember that because the world and maybe certain individuals in your life, they don't make you feel special. Uh, they make you feel like dirt. They walk all over you. They talk bad about you. They do horrible things to you. They smear your name. They, 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 they spread all kind of rumors on social media about you and text people these different rumors. They plan evil things against you. And so you may not feel special, but it doesn't matter how people view you or how people treat you. What matters is this, is that we know how God sees us. We know how God feels about us. And as uh, his body, as the body of Christ, you are his special people, his inheritance. That's awesome. That's something that's kind of crazy for me to say, but it's in the word. And I say it's crazy for me to say because we, we don't add anything to God. There, there's nothing that we add to God. He is complete in and of himself, all by himself. He's complete. But yet we're dependent upon him, but yet and still he sees us as his inheritance, as people who are special to him. You know, think about that in verse four. As we move on, it says, and the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house or descendants, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. This is David speaking to them. In verse five, then they answered the king as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven of his descendants, speaking of King Saul's descendants, be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord God in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. You see, Saul's poor decision affected his family even after his death. And if you're new or visiting, uh, Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. He dead, he's dead now, but his poor decision to break his vow, the, the children of Israel's vow to protect and not harm the Gibeonites, that decision to, to harm them, not keep that vow. Now you see the effects it's having on the land in this famine. And now it's about to affect his family, his descendants, at least seven of them, even, like I said, after his death. Now, now, it could be that some or maybe all of Saul's male descendants benefited from or, or participated in the massacre. So it could be that they were participants as well. But either way, um, we see here that David has agreed to turn over these seven men who were Saul's descendants, he, to turn them over to the Gibeonites. And as David does that, justice will be handed out through their death through the death of these seven men. And so the point we can glean from this, the spiritual nugget we can glean from this is to, to not, over, un, not over, but not underestimate 
the effects of sin that, that can affect those who are close to us. So don't underestimate the effects of sin in the lives of those who are close to us, even after death. For example, there's, there's people who are involved in gang violence and they end up killing somebody else. Then they end up getting killed. And guess what? That war just keeps on going because now they're going to take out one of your people and, and it's going to go back and forth. And so, you know, you see the example there, how the effects of sin could affect those who are close to us, even after we are off the scene or even with something like scamming is involved. You, you scam people out of, out of money and you, you scam different companies and so forth. And now your family who's still living, you're gone, you're dead now. Family who's still living now, they got to perhaps pay that debt or they're going to come after you. And so you can see how the effects of sin can affect those who are close to us even after death. And you see that from the situation with Saul, who's already off the scene. In verse 7 in 2 Samuel 21, it says, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them probably on stakes on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together, and they were put to death in the days of the harvest, of the grain harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest, which would be in the spring, somewhere in March or April. And so, first of all, I just want to start with um, my call in, in verse 8, because it says that David gave five sons of my call, um, the daughter of Saul, um, over to the Gibeonites. And in some translations or some versions of the Bible, you'll see the name Mirab instead of Michal. You may even see Mirab in the margin. Or if it already has Mirab in the text, then you'll see Michal in the margin. But the truth is, Michal and Mirab are both King Saul's daughters. And Mirab is Saul's older daughter. And so it would seem that Mirab, where it says in verse 8 that he gave over the five sons of Michal, it seems like it should be the five sons of, of Mirab is what it should be referring to. Um, and the reason for that is because some manuscripts, first of all, uh, in verse 8, support that. And then there's a fact in the scriptures that um, she is the one who was married to Adriel. So Mirab is actually married to Adriel, who you see there in verse 8. And also it says that Michal had no children until the day of her death. And that's according to 2 Samuel 6, 23. And so these five descendants um, from one of Saul's daughters is actually most likely the, the five sons of Mirab were handed over. 
Uh, but according to one Bible teacher who makes a good point, it could be that Mirab died and that Michal maybe raised her five sons for her. So maybe that's what it could mean where it says, um, you know, Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. So it could be that. Uh, but the two other sons, so those are five sons. And now you want to get to a total of seven that were handed over by David to the Gibeonites because that's what they asked for. And so the two other sons were the sons of Rizpah, Saul's concubine. And so again, this would bring the total of Saul's descendants that were handed over to the Gibeonites. That would bring the total to seven. And so another situation here some people would be looking at is that, first of all, in verse 7, it says the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. But then it says in verse 8, so the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she born to Saul, and it said pretty much that he gave them over to the Gibeonites. So how was Mephibosheth spared but then given over. Okay, so there's a simple way to solve this issue. First of all, the Mephibosheth that was spared was Jonathan's son. So Jonathan is uh, King Saul's son, and Mephibosheth that was spared is King Saul's grandson. But then there was another Mephibosheth, because in verse 8 it says, the second Mephibosheth, was one of the two sons of Rizpah, Saul's concubine. And so in other words, just to keep it simple, (laughs) Mephibosheth was named after his uncle. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) So he was spared, but his uncle was handed over. Okay? So there's no contradiction here. I know some of you, as I read that, were probably confused. Why, Why does it say this? Okay, that's the explanation. He was named after his uncle. His uncle was sent off to the Gibeonites, but the Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, was spared, just like David promised to his best friend, Jonathan, when he was alive. Okay, that makes sense? Hopefully that makes sense. Okay, so, <laughs> so now you have a total of seven of Saul's descendants being handed over to the Gibeonites to be executed. And so we know, of course, that the number seven is the number of completeness. So in other words, their death would be sufficient to atone for or to make up for what Saul had done. And so we we see some interesting things here. But I do want to point out how David kept his promise to Jonathan and he spared his son, Mephibosheth. And so we talked about keeping our vows and and promises a little earlier uh, in our study. But here we, we're going to talk about how God keeps his promises. And we can see that through David. Because David in many ways could be seen in, in some way as, as a type of Christ. He's a forefather or ancestor of Christ according to Jesus' humanity. And so just as how uh, David kept his promise to Jonathan by not killing or handing over Mephibosheth, his son, Jesus, our greater than David, he, he keeps his promises to us. 
And so when he promises to give his sheep eternal life, and that will never be snatched out of his hand or his father's hand, we can bank on him fulfilling that promise. When he talks about how the resurrection is going to happen, that because he lived, that, that we're going to live too. He, he's going to keep that promise. Every promise that he makes to us, he's going to keep it. When he talks about those blessings of peace, he, he's going to keep those promises of those blessings of peace. See, he told us that in this world that we're going to face tribulation. He's not talking about the great tribulation. He, he's talking about tribulation that comes from the world and that comes from the devil. But the tribulation with the capital T that's going to happen in the future, that is going to come from God. That's God pouring out his wrath. But the tribulation that Jesus talked about and what I'm talking about here is coming from the world. But Jesus says, yes, you're going to face this tribulation from the world. But he said, guess what? In me, you have peace. And he's going to keep that promise. Oh, you may be going through some tough times right now. You may be a little discouraged, a little sad right now. You may be frustrated about things right now. Or you may be feeling the pressure at work or just in, from life in general right now. From the enemy, you're being bullied by the enemy, the spiritual enemy, Satan, right now. But... You can bank on God keeping his promises of, of peace. You're going to face that, but in me, you'll have peace. So the question must be asked, are you in him? If you're in him, you open up the door to experience his peace. He also promised that he's going to come again and receive us to himself. Oh, he's going to keep that promise. In verse 10, it says, now Ritzbah. This is, this is King Saul's concubine, right? The, the, the lady with the, with the two sons. Uh, one of them was uh, Mephibosheth, the other Mephibosheth. So Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, she took sackcloth. So this was a sign of mourning. And she spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. So in other words, from about April to October. You know, she kept going out there, sitting on the sackcloth, mourning. And look at what she did in verse 10. She did not allow the birds of the air to rest on her boys, her son's bodies by day, nor the beast of the field, those wild animals by night. And David in verse 11 was told with Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went. He heard about that. He went, he took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who has stolen them from the street or the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. And so that was in 1 Samuel um, when that took place. In verse 13, it says, so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son in the country of Benjamin and Zillah in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. He was receptive to the prayer for the land after that. 
And so we see that David did what he had to do on behalf of the nation of Israel to address the sin, to address the issue and to atone for the sin that Saul committed against the Gibeonites. And so the the bodies of the seven descendants of Saul were left hanging for five to seven or five to six months. Now, normally they would not allow the bodies to be hung overnight. You see in the scriptures in Deuteronomy 21 uh, verses 22 and 23, it says that if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And so David left them there for those five to six months because he wanted to make sure that justice was satisfied and that God was pleased with that. And then it rained. And the fact that the rain came in this land that had experienced famine, it showed that, the, that justice had been satisfied because now the famine is pretty much over. But we also saw something interesting that during those five to six months, Rispa watched over the bodies of her sons. She made sure the birds stayed away. She made sure the wild animals stayed away from her boys' bodies. And we also see that after David was told about what Rispa has done, had done here throughout these five to six months, then David uh, gave their bones and the bones of Saul and Jonathan a proper burial. And what this shows is a heart of respect and compassion or kindness for Rispa and, and the house of Saul. And so we know, of course, that justice had to be done. But there was also within the justice, after it was done, we also saw that there was compassion as well for this mother who had lost two sons. And when I look at David and I see this compassion here after he heard about what she did all these months and he gave those bones a proper burial, burial when, I, when I see this and see the compassion of David, it, may, it reminds me of the compassion that God has. And I know there's some moms and dads who have maybe lost children. And it just reminds us that God has a heart of compassion for those moms and for those dads who have lost a child, even if that child had died as a result of doing something sinful. Maybe the parents raised them right, poured into them, poured the word of God into them, raised them right. But those children have free will and they go off and do crazy things and, and end up getting killed. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have compassion on those parents. Oh, he does. And we kind of see a picture of this. But when we look at David and Ritzpah here, I'm sure that kind of broke his heart a little bit, but justice had to be meted out. But, but notice how God eventually heeded the prayer for the land. Notice how he finally listened to the prayer for this land that was going through three years of famine. But, but notice that God heeding the prayer, that God listening to these prayers, notice that it did not happen until the sin that occurred against the Gibeonites was dealt with. 
So that's when he started hearing the prayers again, when the problem was rectified, when, when what happened to the Gibeonites because of Saul was atoned for. God started listening again. And so what we conclude here is that unaddressed sin in a nation, we're going to start with the nation because this dealt, this lesson dealt with the nation of Israel. And so we conclude that unaddressed sin in the nation and even, of course, unaddressed sin in our lives will bring judgment. It'll bring chastisement and it will, of course, hinder prayers, block our prayers to keep it simple. And if our prayers are blocked or hindered, it means that our fellowship and blessings will be hindered as well. And in fact, this is what it says in Psalm 66, verse 18. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In other words, if I have any unconfessed sin in my heart, not on address it. I don't repent. My prayers will be hindered. The Lord will not hear. See, on the national level, many of you know this, our country has some sins to deal with. If not, there will be judgment. Oh, we see here that the sin here that needed to be addressed was murder against the Gibeonites and vows were broken when that murder of these people occurred. Why? Because of, a, because of King Saul who's being zealous for Israel and Judah, zeal without knowledge, murdered this group of people that they promised to protect. You see, our, our nation, we, we have some sins to deal with. Or judgment is coming. We've seen it throughout the scriptures. We, yeah, we see how Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. We see how even God's chosen people, chosen nation, Israel, was judged by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. We, we see this. Read the book of Judges. You see all these nations coming in all because of sin. But speaking of our nation from 1973 to 2020, the year 2020, nearly 64 million babies have been murdered. Or how about this stat? In, in 2020, the murder homicide rate increased by 28.64% from 2019. So 28.64%. From 2019 to 2020, we saw the murder homicide rate increase in the United States. We're talking about murder that brought judgment and breaking of vows brought judgment on Israel. But, but now we're seeing that our nation has done and is doing the same thing. And to my knowledge, God is the same God. And, and sin needs to be addressed. But, but there are other sins that more and more people are supporting in this nation, or it's about to get a little more quiet. It's already quiet, but it's about to get a little more quiet there. You see, there, even in this nation, there are more and more people encouraging people, even people who claim to be Christians. 
You see, the world is going to be the world. But what frustrates me, to be honest, is when people claim to be Christians and they still encourage people to sin. They they encourage people and even children to continue in their sexual sins. And to my knowledge, when you when you involve children, you cause children to stumble. To my knowledge, millstones are heavy. Jesus said it would be better for that person who offend one of these little ones to have a millstone tied around his neck and then be cast into the sea and to drown. Millstones are heavy, but we have more and more people encouraging people, even children, to continue in their sexual sin. Sex changes puberty blockers for children. Even having sexually explicit books in schools. And then when the parents find out about it and go to these school board meetings, they have the nerve to try to defend it. God is still the God of judgment. He's a holy God. Sin must be dealt with. They even put in this mess in children's shows. What does a children's show have to do with sexuality? What does one, two, three, one plus one is two? I'm an English major, but I can still add that. One plus one is two, right? Am I correct? What, what is that? ABCs. What is, what is spelling the word cat? C-A-T have to do with sexuality. Why is that brought in? It's demonic. A demonic agenda. But, but that's what's being done in this country, not just murder. You see, our country... We have some sins to deal with. And and of course, it'll be nice to have a godly leader who's going to go before the Lord like David did and ask what sins we need to ask forgiveness for. And then on top of that, to lead the people, to lead the nation in repenting, like it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. See, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, to give you the background, you know, the temple in Jerusalem had just been completed by King Solomon. He oversaw it. King Solomon is King David's son. And after the temple was completed in Jerusalem, Solomon prayed to the Lord a prayer of dedication and the Lord answered him at night. And the Lord answered this in Second Chronicles 7 uh, verses 13 and 14. He says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, just like what happened here in our lesson tonight, or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, just like we saw in verse 14 of our study tonight. And he says, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So yes, we talk about on a national level, Repentance is necessary, but how about us personally? How about us personally? Let me talk to myself. Darrell, how about you? Are are there things in, in our lives that are not going right? Are there things in our lives, our, our spiritual walk seems to be a little off. As a believer, if if you're not mistaken, it seems like you're being spanked a little bit. And if you're being spanked for sin as a believer, by the way, that's a good sign. You are a true believer because it says he chastises those he loves. And if you are not without chastisement, if you don't have chastisement, then that means you are illegitimate. You're not a true believer. 
He's going to chastise those who he loves. So if you're a believer, you're, you're in sin, you refuse to confess it and repent, you're going to be spanked. And so maybe you feel like you're being spanked by the Lord as a believer. Or maybe you feel like your prayers are being ignored. Like I said earlier, they don't seem to be going past the ceiling. Now, are you in that place right now? Or, or maybe as we talked about a famine early on, maybe spiritually you are in a famine. Maybe spiritually you feel spiritually dry. You're experiencing a spiritual famine. Nothing moves you. The, the word of God just doesn't do anything for you. You can't, you know, you can't even raise your hands to, to worship the Lord because you're, you're embarrassed. You, you know you messed up and, and, and God is putting it on your heart to confess. He's convicting you, but you're ignoring the conviction. And there's a difference between conviction And condemnation, that's the word I'm looking for. Difference between conviction and condemnation. With condemnation, that comes from the enemy. He's pushing you away from God. But with conviction from God, it's drawing you nearer to him. So maybe you've been ignoring the conviction and you're having a hard time worshiping the Lord. I would encourage you if you're in this spiritually dry place, you feel like, feel like you're in a spiritual famine. I would encourage you to ask the Lord, just like David did, Lord, it, it, what's going on? Is there sin involved? Except I would say this. David set a good example, but I would say don't wait three years. There were three, three years of famine before he did that. Don't, don't wait long. Ask the Lord if there's sin involved. And if there is, confess it, repent, ask the Lord. What do he have you to do to address it? If there's anything further he wants you to do. And and here's the good news. If the Lord does point out any sin in your life that you've been ignoring. The good news is that God is willing to forgive anyone who has sinned. And he's willing to overturn that spiritual famine in your life. He's, He's able to overturn and willing to overturn that famine of blessings. He's willing to overturn that famine of a close fellowship with him. And the reason he's willing and he's able to forgive is, of course, he's a merciful God and forgiveness is an extension of mercy, right? But, but what sets the stage for that, what makes that even possible is because of the God man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, or truly God, truly man, if you want to put it that way. Jesus Christ, the son of God, it's because of him, because he's the one who hung on the tree, by the way. Yeah, we saw these men, these seven men, they hung on the tree. They, they were hung on stakes or whatever. And then the land was atoned for. You see, and then God began to hear their prayers. He, he forgave them. He heard the prayers. He heeded the prayers of the land. And, and God is willing to forgive us as well if there's any sin in our lives that's causing our prayers to be hindered. He's willing to do that because Jesus Christ, he hung on the tree. He died in our place to pay the price to deliver us from the wrath of God the Father. In other words, he died on account of our sins. He hung on a tree. He hung, in other words, on a cross. He became a curse for us, just like those seven men who were descendants of Saul. They became the curse. They, 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 they took 
the justice, the judgment. On behalf of the people, Jesus did that. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree, who hangs on a tree. He hung on a cross. Cross, of course, made of wood come from a tree. So Jesus Christ became cursed for us. He hung on that cross for us. And he redeemed us. He purchased us. He bought us back from the curse of of the law. Because the law points out our sin. The the law shows us how guilty we are. But he redeemed us from that. So we don't have to face the penalty of sin. We don't have to face being eternally separated from God in a place called hell. And our sins can be, our sins are forgiven. We just need to receive it by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And as believer, if our, if our feet get a little dirty in our walk, if there, if there's something in our lives that we need to confess, we can confess it and receive that forgiveness and that fellowship will be restored because once again, we have uh, the son of God, Jesus Christ, our greater than David who hung upon a cross for us and he became cursed for us. You see, Jesus' death is sufficient to make up for our sins. Just like that, those seven guys, the number of completeness, how, how their death was sufficient to make up for what Saul did. Jesus' death is sufficient to atone for, to make up for our sins. In fact, he washes our sins away, not just cover them. You see, the payment is complete. As Matt takes the stage... The payment is complete. The IOUs that were made in the Old Testament by many of uh, those who sacrificed animals, those animals, those blood of the animals, they, they, they were like IOUs. Jesus paid it off. And so whether you're experiencing chastisement from the Lord or not at this time, I, I think it's healthy to ask the Lord from time to time to, to search your heart. And to show up if there's anything that we need to confess. And so tonight, if you want to stay after or you just want to do it at home sometime this week, I would encourage you to do that. And if there's somebody who who has never placed their faith in Jesus for salvation, I would encourage you to not waste another day and repent. That means turn from your sins and turn to him in faith. He'll receive you. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. Thank you, Lord, for prayer. And Lord, we we pray that if there's any sin in our lives, we need to confess and repent of and address that you would reveal it to us. And we thank you, Lord, for doing that because you want us to walk in unhindered fellowship with you. And I pray, Father, that when people leave this place, they will not feel condemned. The enemy wants to condemn those who've already been forgiven. And I pray your blessing upon them tonight, Lord, as they leave this place, but not your presence. And I'm asked, Lord, that you would use them in a mighty way this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please feel free to come up for prayer if you need prayer. As always, may God keep you, may God bless you, and we love you. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, 
or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.